the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Joshua. God had been faithful to the children of Israel. They were finally in the land of promise, ready to conquer, ready for victory. God dried up the waters of the Jordan River at its swell season. Once across, the Israelites consecrated themselves and celebrated the Passover in enemy territory. Their first obstacle was the walled city of Jericho. God had promised them that he would give them the city. He told Joshua to have the whole army march around the city once a day for six days. Then, on the seventh day, they were to march seven times around the city and give the shout of victory, for God would be victorious. We join Pastor Will as the Israelites obeyed all that was commanded them and shouted in Joshua chapter 6, verse 16. Verse 16. And it came to pass at the seventh time when the priests blew with the trumpets, Joshua said unto the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And everyone shouted, right? Is that what it says? I was a little bit let down when I noticed this. Because that kind of seems like the climax, right? Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Hurrah! And then the walls come crumbling down, right? Isn't that how it's supposed to go? That's how it's in the movies. Most times this event is replicated on video or even taught in church. The picture is given of a people triumphantly shouting as soon as the trumpets are blown in this wave of emotion as they finally are going to conquer the city. But that is not it at all. The trumpets blow. And Joshua tells him to shout, but that's not all he says. In fact, he gives this long list of detailed instructions in verses 17 through 19. Now, why do I bring that up? I bring this up because this wasn't an emotionally out of control shout. It was a well-taught, well-instructed shout after being reminded of God's full instructions. I think sometimes we either get into the idea that emotion is bad or lack of emotion is bad. It's not that emotion is bad. It's just that obedience is better. Obedience is better because many times I will need to obey even when I don't feel like it. Many times in life, you will need to obey even when you don't feel like it. Now listen, that song, Touch of Heaven, that Alex and Abby led us in tonight, I can barely get through that song. I can can very verbalize it. It is the perfect devotion song. Everything about that song is about coming to God's word. I'm looking for something new from you, Lord. I want to hear your voice. I want to trust you again. I don't want to walk in my own ways. I want to be undone. That song encapsulates everything I want in my time with the Lord. I can barely get through it. There's a lot of emotion when I sing that song because you know why? I know when I come to my devotion, it's not always like that. I know that sometimes I'm stubborn. Sometimes I'm hard-hearted. Sometimes it's just an act of obedience. And I want it to be something that I always long for, that I'm always desperately looking to hear from God, looking for something new and fresh from him to change my life. But the reality is, even if it feels that way every time, it doesn't make it more obedient than when I don't feel that way. 
Obedience is better than sacrifice. Saul, when that whole situation arose, people think, oh man, God really is hard with Saul. I mean, the people are giving him a hard time. Philistines are going to attack. The army's getting closer and they can't take their battle stations until the sacrifice is done. Samuel said, don't do the sacrifice till I get there. And Saul is seeing people leave because they're afraid. And he's thinking, if I wait till Samuel gets there, I'm not going to have an army. And so he goes up and he, not a priest, does the sacrifice. And as he's doing it, just as he's done finishing up, guess who walks into camp? Samuel. And Saul greets me, goes, oh, welcome now, blessed to the Lord. You know, I've done everything God asked me to do. And that's when Samuel says to him, what in the world have you done? That you would presume you could go up and offer this sacrifice? That you could just go through the motions of doing something and not obey the Lord? But the people, they were going to flee. They weren't going to follow me anymore. So what? Obedience is better than sacrifice. That's what he tells him. The Bible says rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. I always wondered that. I went to a church that you heard that all the time, especially if you were a kid, kid, I was a teenager. Rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. And of course, you know, I don't want to be a witch. Cast some demons out of you and fix it and all that kind of stuff. Why is rebellion as a sin of witchcraft? Well, what's witchcraft? Witchcraft is looking for supernatural insight, information from a source besides God, right? Rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft because rebellion is where I look to myself as a source of information and insight instead of the Lord. That's why it's like the sin of witchcraft. I'm not to look to me. I'm not the source of information. I don't look to my emotions and all those types of things for what I need to do. I need to do what God says. And so there are times when you'll need to come to your devotion or do something else that the Lord tells you to do. You know you need to do. You need to read the word. You need to pray or whatever. And you won't feel like doing it, but you do it anyway because obedience is better. It's better. So it's not that emotion's bad. Most of the time I come, it is like that song, but not every time because many times you'll need to obey even when you don't feel like it. And sometimes you'll even need to rein in your emotions in order to obey God's instructions instead of doing what you feel like doing. I see people do things sometimes and they'll tell me, oh, sorry, Pastor William, the Spirit just got a hold of me. And I'm like, not the Holy Spirit because the fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control, self-control. You're never out of control when the Holy Spirit's working in your life. It's a submission to the Holy Spirit, you know, a self-control. So this wasn't an emotionally out of control shout. So what does God remind them before they shout? Well, two things. Verse 17 shows the first one. He says, shout for the Lord has given you the city and the city shall be accursed, even it and all that are therein to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all that are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. Now this phrase here, accursed to the Lord, that's kind of a weird phrase, isn't it? How can something be accursed to the Lord? The word accursed here, it means under the ban, a thing devoted to God for destruction. It's been placed under a ban. Nothing in it can be redeemed. Nothing in it can be used. It carries the idea of an irrevocable decree. In other words, there's no possibility for redemption at this point. In other words, your time is up, Jericho. For everyone in that city, aside from Rahab, your time is up. You have had your opportunity to repent, and now you must answer to the judge of all the earth. People hear that, and they get offended at that idea. But the reality is God gave them their entire lives to repent. In fact, in Jericho's case, God gave them more than their entire life. Look at Genesis 15 with me. Genesis 15. Keep your finger in Joshua, of course, because we'll return back. Look at Genesis 15 with me. We're going to go back 400 years. Now, 400 years before Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, 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 there was a man named Abraham. And this guy named Abraham, God promised him all this land. 
Now, how much of that land did Abraham actually own in his lifetime? Just a small little burial plot, the cave of Machpelah, right? And the field that went with it. That's all he ever owned of the land that God promised to him. Abraham traveled throughout this land and had his tent pitched in various places, but he never owned it except for that small patch of ground. And there's a reason for that. In Genesis 15, when God is promising the land to Abram, he says in 1513, he said unto Abram, know of a surety that your seed shall be a stranger in a strange land that is not theirs and shall serve them. That's a reference to Egypt. And they shall afflict them 400 years. And also that nation whom they shall serve, Egypt, will I judge. And afterward they will come out with great substance, which they did. And you shall go to your fathers in peace. You are not going to experience any of this, Abram. You shall be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation, your people will come out of that land where they were slaves. Again, they'll come here again. They'll come out of that land and they'll come here again. Why? Why do they have to wait 400 years? For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full or complete, is what it says. Isn't that interesting? God says they have not gotten to the place where I have to say time is up yet. So not only did God give Jericho their entire lives, he gave them 400 years to repent. For 400 years, Jericho had creation telling them that there's a real God out there and not some dumb idol. They had their conscience telling them their deeds were evil and not pleasing to God. And then recently they had the experience and the news of the miracles that God did for Israel, so much so that they knew that God was there to destroy them if they didn't repent. On top of all that, God gave them six days of his people marching around the city with no attacks, no threats, no taunts, not a single harsh word. What more was God supposed to do? What more was God supposed to do for them? Rahab testified that all her people knew that they were doomed, but they still refused to repent. They still chose to fight God. Listen, if I persist in rebellion against God when all he's done is shown me mercy, I cannot blame him for eventually saying time is up. I can't. People blame God all the time for doing nothing to stop evil. But then when they read about when he did, they get angry. When God did stop evil, when he finally said, enough's enough. I've given you enough time to respond to my mercy. Now I have to deal with you. Time's up. They get mad. How could God do that? How could a loving God do that? We cannot have it both ways. We cannot look at the evil around us and go, where's God? And then when God shows up in the scripture and shows where he is and does something about it, go, how could a God of love do that? You can't have it both ways. Now, of course, even with that explanation, people will frequently say, yeah, but what about the animals and the children? They hadn't done anything wrong. I covered that in past teachings, so I don't want to belabor that topic again tonight. But can I just suggest this? If that's what's keeping you from coming to the Lord, and if you care so much about animals and about children, then why not walk with the Lord so your judgment doesn't affect those who are close to you? Why not walk with the Lord and do something about it in other people's lives so it doesn't affect them? Sitting there critiquing God isn't helping anyone. It's not helping anyone. There was one exception to this ban, of course. Rahab and all that were in her family that believed her and would stay in her house, they were to be spared just as the spies had promised her. You know, Hebrews chapter 11 has some interesting things to say about Joshua chapter 6. But before it does, in Hebrews 11 verse 6, it gives that famous verse about faith. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Listen, if you're going to do things your way, you're not going to trust the Lord. You can't please God. There is no way Jericho could persist in their rebellion against God and please God. And when you are not pleasing God, it's going to affect everyone close to you. But if you do trust him, no matter how ugly your past has been, you will find mercy. 
And can I tell you that that mercy will also affect everyone that's close to you? Here in Hebrews chapter 11 in verse 31, it says, by faith. And then what does it call Rahab here? What does it say? By faith, the harlot Rahab. All her past was ugly. But by faith, this woman who had an ugly past did not perish with them that didn't believe. It makes it very clear why they perished here. They perished because they refused to believe. They refused to please God. They refused to submit to God. They continued to rebel against God. But this harlot who'd had a horrible past, she didn't perish with them because by faith she believed. She, when she had received the spies with peace, she was saved because she trusted in the Lord. She trusted in the Lord. So no matter what you've done or where you've been or how you failed, if you will trust the Lord, you'll find mercy just like she did. And that mercy will impact everyone who's close to you. So the first instruction they need to remember before they shouted was, when you go up into that city, do not save anyone alive. The second instruction they need to remember back here in Joshua 6, 18 and 19 is they must not take any plunder. Verse 18, and you in any wise keep yourselves. In any wise there means exclusively, restrictively, make sure you exercise some self-control because you're gonna see some shinies. You're gonna see some shinies. So make sure you exercise some self-control here and you in any wise keep from yourselves from the accursed thing lest you make yourselves accursed. When you you take of the accursed thing and then make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it. But all the silver, the gold, and the vessels of brass and iron, they will be consecrated unto the Lord. They should come into the treasury of the Lord. This is a pretty heavy warning here because he says, if you take anything, any plunder from the city, you will suffer the same fate as the people of Jericho because you'll be placed under the same ban they were. Devoted to destruction, no mercy, time up. That's how serious this was. Not only that, but they would bring God's displeasure and disfavor upon the entire camp of Israel. So a pretty important instruction, right? Don't get so emotional in your shout that you forget this when you go into the city. Don't see a necklace or something like that and grab it thinking it's a little thing. It's not a little thing. It's to be devoted to the Lord. Clear instructions with about as heavy a warning as you can be given. Wipe everything out except Rahab's home. Don't take anything for yourself. Two important reminders that Israel must follow to a T or it will cause problems. Can you see I'm laying groundwork for a future problem? Because this instruction will not be followed by one man and we're gonna see the consequences of that. Now, with all these reminders, Israel can make a well-informed shout and proceed with the battle. So here we come to verse 20. Drum roll, please. So the people shouted when the priests blew with the trumpets and then we had a colon there, which means a pause. The big moment is here. Will the walls fall? Will God do what he said? Well, let's find out. And it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and oxen and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. Israel followed God's instructions here to a T. If we go back to Hebrews 11, verse 30 says something very interesting. Because right before it mentions Rahab's faith, because we're going to get to her in just a second, it mentions Israel's faith in this action. Hebrews eleven thirty, it says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after that they were walked around for seven days. That's interesting. Every person before that, it says, and by faith, Moses, or by faith, Abraham, or by faith, Sarah, or by faith, Rahab. This is the first instance where you won't have an individual name. And that's because it wasn't an individual who did it by faith. Do you know 
of all the things that happened since Israel left Egypt, of all the things they experienced, this is the only thing the Bible declares that the entire nation trusted God with. The only thing. This is the thing that the writer of Hebrews decides to pick and go, man, what did the nation do when they took the promised land? What did they do that they exercised faith in? And as he looked over the scriptures, he said, this was it. This is the place they trusted God the most. By faith, those walls came down. They did everything that God said. God promised them the victory, and they were able to experience the benefits of that victory because they followed God's instructions by faith. And so I ask you tonight, are there any areas that you're not following God's instructions? And if so, what's keeping you from trusting him? What's keeping it from being said about you that by faith, such and such happened in your life? The Israelites weren't the only ones trusting God during this time. Rahab is inside the city when all this chaos occurs, when the entire city walls where she lives on the walls come crashing down around her. I mean, I don't know about you. I've never been in a building when it was shaking or rocking or never been in an earthquake or anything like that, but I have been in a hurricane. And I can tell you, I didn't feel safe in my house as it was passing right over me. It was a little panicky at moments and stuff. So, I mean, there were definitely some moments where, you know, you're like, this is a little eerie. This is a little, this is a little you know, a little sketchy here, kind of like a basement right about now. So Rahab had to trust the Lord and stay in that home to trust that it wouldn't collapse supernaturally. And she did. Rahab was inside the city trusting that if she and her family followed the spies' instructions, they would be spared. And God, because of her faith, will reward her as well. We look back in Joshua 6, verse 22. But Joshua had said unto the two men that had spied out the country, go into the harlot's house and bring out from there the woman and all that she has as you swear unto her. And so the young men that were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all that she had. And they brought out all her kindred and left them without the camp of Israel. Now, once Rahab and her family are safely out, verse 24, and they, Israel, burnt the city with fire and all that was therein, only the silver and the gold and the vessels of brass and of iron, they put that into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Once Rahab and her family were safely out, and only then, Israel burnt the city to the ground. That was the only way to ensure that nothing in the city would be used for self, but that it would all be devoted to destruction. Now, some of the valuable things there were taken out to provide for the priests who worked in the tabernacle. Remember, they were not out working fields or anything to provide for the family. They did not have livestock or crops or anything like that. So this was for their provision. God did tell them to do that. But notice here that right after that said, verse 25, and Joshua saved Rahab the harlot alive and her father's household and all that she had. Anyone that trusted her word that she brought into that house was spared. And she dwells in Israel now. Joshua makes his own personal note here. She dwells in Israel even unto this day because she hid the messengers which Joshua sent to spy out Jericho, which Hebrews tells us she did by faith. God keeps his promises to those who trust in his mercy, doesn't he? Rahab and her family, they are saved. And while verse 23 says they start outside the camp of Israel, they're considered Gentiles outside the camp when they're first brought out of Jericho. Joshua makes this personal comment that now years later when he's writing this, they are fully integrated into Israeli society by that time. Fully counted as the people of God, even though they're not Jewish even though they're not Israelites. See, God didn't judge the Canaanites because they weren't Israelites. He judged them because they had persisted in their sin and wouldn't repent. Now, before we close out the defeat of Jericho, Joshua does one last thing as the city is burning. Look at verses 26 and 27. And Joshua 
adjured them. The them here has to refer to the nation of Israel. The word adjured means to give a charge to someone. He gave a charge to the nation as the city's burning. He gives this charge to the nation of Israel, a command or a warning, saying, cursed be the man before the Lord. In other words, he'll be under God's judgment. The man who does this will be under God's judgment. Who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. For if he does so, here's his curse. He shall lay the foundation thereof in his firstborn, and in his youngest son shall he set up the gates of it. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was noised throughout all the country. Now, this is a little bit hard to understand in our English because you think, okay, it's just giving a timeline. How is that a curse? It's not giving a timeline. The idea of laying the foundation means to fortify the walls. So gates then would be the completion of those fortifications. So the idea here is not so much that anyone lived in this area. I'll address that in a minute. But if someone decides to rebuild a fortified city in this area, he says he will do so in his firstborn. Literally, it means at the cost of his firstborn and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up. He'll finish it. In other words, he will lose every child in the process of building this fortified city. That will be his curse. That will be his judgment. People were allowed to live in this region. It's an oasis in the desert there. Given that land, it's the best place to to settle down. This land was given to the tribe of Abraham after they conquer the land. But the key here is they were forever forbidden from making it a city with walls. They could be a village. They could be there. They could take advantage of the spring and the oasis. No problem. It was called the city of palms because it just was an oasis there in the desert. Still is today. But they could not build walls again. Because being a wallless town would be forever a reminder that God deals with rebels who refuse to repent, no matter how many fortifications you raise. And God wanted that image to stay. Because Jericho was this oasis in the desert, and because it was at the perfect crossroads for business, it would be very tempting for someone to turn this city into one that had been entirely devoted to destruction into a fortified city again. Because merchants aren't going to go somewhere they're not sure they're going to be safe. But on the other hand, if you have walls and fortifications and an army, well, we'll set up shop here for as long as you will keep us. But the cost of going against God's ban would be very high. It would cost that person everything they loved. 1 Kings 16 verse 34 states that a man named Hael the Bethelite did exactly that. And all of his sons died in the process, just as Joshua warned. Do you think he felt like the merchant income was worth it at that point? Can I share something I see often when people come to me for counsel with their families? Too often I see that people sacrifice things that are truly important because they want something badly enough to disobey God. Don't do that. (laughs) Follow God's instructions without compromise. Because then verse 27 will be your testimony. Maybe not exactly, but in some way. For it says, so the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was spread throughout all the country. That can be your testimony, that God's with you and that he's using you to impact the lives of those around you instead of destroy them. Amen? Well, I want to leave you tonight with some important safety instructions for the Christian life. I don't think these should be printed at the front of every Bible, but it's not bad. You and I were designed to operate within defined limitations by God. Misuse will result in problems, possibly even electrocution or fire damage. To prevent such damage, God's instructions should be observed for proper preparation, everyday use, and maintenance. Read God's instructions regularly before doing anything. And keep those instructions safe in your heart for future reference. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, your word is our manual, Lord, our instruction manual. And like Israel, Lord, they had some instructions here that they didn't necessarily make sense from like a a logical reason out, how shouting 
equals walls falling down. But Lord, they were your instructions. And so, Lord, they needed to obey them. And, and I praise you that they did because, Lord, they lay an example of what f- real faith looks like for us, that faith is obedience, Lord. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen, that even if we can't see you or you don't understand how it will work, that we will trust you and say, Lord, I will do what you say. So, Lord, that's our, our commitment tonight, that we want to be those who trust you, that follow our instruction manual, knowing that it's designed for our safety. You designed us with very clear limitations, And Lord, you know us better than we know ourselves. So we surrender to your superior understanding of us. We don't want to be guilty of that sin of witchcraft, Lord, that sin of rebellion, of looking to our own hearts, our own reasoning, our own intellect for insight. But we choose to trust you and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. God has magnified his word above his name. He desires obedience over sacrifice. God wants to bless us, but it will only be on His terms and in His ways. We may not understand how everything will work out, but instead of asking how, perhaps we should ask who. Who is in control? Who has led us to this place of uncertainty? We can trust an uncertain future to a God we are certain of. His ways are not our own, but He is always for us. We can rest in His love, knowing He will get us through all of life's storms and battles. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.